Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Welcome. Welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Alongside me this evening, Troy, how are you, sir? I'm all right, how are you? I'm doing well, I'm doing well, and there's a lot we could cover this evening. Not really in terms of the topical news, because we could get into this back and forth. Rashida Tlaib and Elon Omar gave a press conference responding to the fact that Israel boycotted them and banned them from entering the country. Well, they gave a, a special allowance to, to leave after she wrote him a letter saying, I'm trying to go to the West Bank to visit my 90-something-year-old grandmother. Has she met her before? I don't know. I don't want to speak out of turn. Okay. So, But Israel received that request, and the foreign minister said, okay, yeah, you can go visit your grandmother. Uh, what we have a problem with and why we banned you in the first place is don't be going to any groups that advocate BDS. Because that's, in our opinion, like, you're trying to say boycott, divest, and sanction our country. So we don't want you doing that. And so after they granted it to leave, so like, under these conditions, my grandmother and I can't eat. I, don't, I shouldn't go if you're trying to silence me. And it's this whole big thing. The president's involved with it. Netanyahu's involved with it. It's just... Well, it's designed to do this, folks. It bleeds, it leads, is the old kind of uh, saying. If it inspires outrage, and we got talking, and not to give too many details away, off mic at the end of the last week's Monday show, I'll use my example. I've told my dad straight up, and his new girlfriend now, I love you, Stephanie, she said the same thing to him. Stop watching Fox News until the wee hours of the evening and falling asleep to even the repeats as they go on. All it's doing is pissing you off. Yeah. And you can get the same information if you want somewhere else pretty quickly by reading it, but being stirred up and... Mm, it's what the news is designed to do. And you, the same thing, despite the different ideological bent at CNN and MSNBC, especially cable news. There's something... They want to rile you up. And also, it's not immune. You can say, oh, alternative media is so much better. No, not really. Yeah, You can go to a lot of internet shows. They're doing the same shtick, just they're a little uh, looser with the language regulations so they can say certain things. Um, but it got me thinking. I watched a panel uh, with three folks on it, but one in particular I've started to follow. I need to read his book in full, but his name's Matt Ridley. He is a member of the House of Lords, 
which by is some weird accident. He said, some days I lean anarchist, but ironically, I'm a member of the House of Lords. Yeah, it's almost like, oh, gosh. Sometimes in movies and TV shows, there's like a guy who's really high up, but like supports the resistance. Yeah, that's him. That'd be him. He's a Brexiteer. Um, he, he's, I mean, he's a freaking brilliant man. I think he actually got his degree at Oxford in zoology, so he's big into evolutionary science, biology. Um, he's written several books, and the book I really want to read uh, is The Rational Optimist. And it's kind of in the same vein as the psychologist from Harvard, Stephen, Stephen Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now. Um, and uh, it also grabs from some of the economists, uh, people like George Gilder. Uh, the audiobook I was listening to this weekend is the last in a three-volume series from Deirdre McCloskey, uh, essentially called Bourgeois Equality. First one is what? Bourgeois virtue, bourgeois dignity, and bourgeois equality. So the virtues of the middle class that made the world so rich in the first volume, the reasons why we became so rich since the year 1800, and it's not all the usual explanations you hear. And then now this one's like specifically why these values and virtues were allowed to flourish, and it's how the so-called ruling class, what she calls the clerisy, so literal religious clerics in Europe, and in the United States, but also, you know, thought leaders, writers, and whatnot. Uh, they stopped looking down their noses at the average guy trying to make money and sort of said, yeah, let him do what he wants. Just because he's not part of the nobility or doesn't come from a great family doesn't mean he's a bad person. And she's literally citing Jane Austen novels where characters are like, you know, if he wasn't working all day, I'd like him like you know it's just it's a shift that happened in the culture and her argument is that the way we started regarding the average person having a go at it making a little bit of money is what made us so rich in the system as she calls it trade tested betterment or innovism or whatever essentially let people be free try things out under the liberal classical liberal program of uh, liberty, peace, equality, and this is what's made us so rich. And now that it's spread across the globe and even adopted in uh, piecemeal ways by places like China, you're seeing, and India the same, you're seeing those economies finally start to grow. Now, China's in a pretty tough spot because they have now, they made a deal after the Tiananmen massacre that, uh, okay, folks, it's also a deal that people couldn't really refuse. It's an authoritarian government, but whatever. Uh, folks, we'll make you, as many of you as possible, hopefully all billion-something of you, rich. Richer than you ever imagined, as long as you don't stir anything up. No political incitement, no you know opposition parties, no revolutions will make you rich. And to a large extent, China has delivered for a lot of people, but they could have delivered in a much more humane manner, in my opinion, if they had actually you know, gone to a sort, somewhat classical liberal program. But they're not going to do that anytime soon. Do you think, outside of the authoritarianism, that the way China goes about quelling dissent is reminiscent of Southern Baptists? I have no idea. Where, uh, well, how, what do you mean that in terms of the Don't, don't shake the boat kind of thing like oh sure everything's yeah. normal but like as soon as somebody leaves the room it's just immediate talking about them behind their back uh yeah maybe to a degree and that is this town it's you could say it's a baptist thing we're dominated by baptists but it's uh 
It's it's a, it's just it's a, a southern, southern thing, thing. <laughs> in general. I don't care if you're Baptist, Catholic, Methodist, whatever. It's kind of a southern thing. I would be interested to know if they have a colloquialism for "bless your heart." Oh, over in China? Yeah, well, I know. I, in, I know in Japan, it's um, "Would you like another cup of tea?" Uh, because apparently. <laughs> The tea is made when you get there, when you visit. If they ask if you'd like another cup of tea instead of giving you a cup of tea, mm-hmm. that is saying, like, I'm going to get up and go and make you a cup of tea because you've overstayed your welcome. I'll do that. Do you want another cup of tea? Which is basically like, screw off. Right, right. Well, and I know China's history has a... I mean, because their history is so long, I don't know all of it, but there was a period, I think, like the, the War of the Five Arm or Five Tribes or something like that. There's a long period, a few hundred years long in Chinese history, where it's like just war the whole time. Yeah. Constant battle. So there's... They're very nervous because it's so many people and such a diverse continent. Like, right now, Beijing has an iron fist on a lot of the places, but there's certainly parts, we talked about this last week, parts in the south of China that they don't have that much control on. It's true, but they've done a very, and this is not me praising them, they've done an excellent job of brainwashing certain facets of their history into the people. Oh, yeah, and uh, I watched a panel with Deirdre McCloskey on it, and she said, like, I knew the folks, the economists from the Chicago School, like the Milton Friedman types who advised them in the late 80s, saying, here's what you should do. You should go full hog, free market, but we know you're not going to do that, so here's the piecemeal stuff you can do. And she said, essentially, China's in this position. They've actually pulled off the deal they made after the Tiananmen massacre pretty well. They've made their country very, very rich. I mean, they've pulled people out of, like, 50 cents a day, like true peasant farming, and pulled them a large large numbers into middle-class luxury and living. Not all of them. And it's, again, I'm not praising it. It's mixed with all this authoritarianism, and you have to, like, Jack Ma. I'll make you rich because I'm going to buy your farmland that has been in your family for centuries. And I'll give you a 99-year lease, but uh, we still own it, and you better not talk bad about the party. In fact, maybe just go live in the city. You don't want to know what's going on here. So the position China's in, and this was the metaphor used, is they've been riding the tiger for a while. Very successfully. Like, the Chinese people are the tiger, and they've been riding it, and like, okay, we're going to make this tiger fat and happy, and they're at a point now, it's like, oh no, now that the tiger's kind of fat and happy, the tiger kind of wants some some rights. The tiger kind of wants some freedoms, like we're seeing in Hong Kong. And so where the Chinese leadership is really worried is that they're going to fall off the tiger, and the tiger's going to eat them. And where President Xi, and we really shouldn't even call him President Xi like we covered last week, where Xi Jinping has go, gone with these things is he's sort of cracked down, become more authoritarian. New stories out today about millions of people banned because of these social credit scores from any sort of travel, these sorts of things. So good luck with that, China. Tangentially related, there's an American company called Valve. You might have mm-hmm. heard of a game called Half-Life or Team Fortress. Anyway, they've got this program uh, called Steam, and that's basically like Xbox Live. Yeah, I have Steam on my computer. Yeah. Um, Well, they're working with the Chinese government for... They're trying to expand their their business, so to speak, and uh, they're having, like, a tournament in China, and one of the banned words on the list, because we've talked about this before, is actually Winnie the Pooh. So, like, in the live chat for the live stream, you can't mention Winnie the Pooh. So, apparently, 
people have taken to just in all caps spamming which is to repeat over and over again uh like 1000 acre woods or 100 acre woods or whatever whatever the name of the place is that Winnie the Pooh lived on yeah. I know I know where you're talking about just like all caps Christopher Robin <laughs> so they're they're slowly increased and Tiananmen Square is banned yes so they're well, in, and even in, the code words for it they got wise to it they've been banning those like the date or whatever inverted September 17th 1980 no it was July okay. I, I covered it earlier this year um it, yeah, it's it's amazing how much they they're, they're trying to crack down on this tiger they've been riding, and I think they're all feeling really nervous about right now with banking system troubles and all this stuff. Okay, you need to relent, China, in a large way. And okay, there's all these problems around the world. I'm going to come back to this guy, Matt Ridley. He's on this panel talking about that we're surrounded by pessimism all the time. Like, things are we're richer than ever before in human history, but we're constantly being, I think, told everything's going to hell. It's true. We're on the verge of catastrophe. And he says, well, one part of this is that we tend to focus on the negative. In the news, bleeds it leads. If it aggravates you, whatever. Like, you don't hear about, in the news, a plane landed successfully today after a 500-mile journey. That's not news. Yeah. It's like, that's what planes are supposed to do. Yeah. And it's still a wonder of invention and commerce that planes can do that. For a few hundred bucks, you can travel across this country of ours. But it's not exactly this marvelous thing in terms of the headlines. It's, it's almost like the briefest of flashes for wholesome and positive things. are They're, they're very quick. They're bright. And mm-hmm. then they die off really quick. And what's left, obviously, is is darkness in the absence of light. Well, and um, so that's why news seems negative. But like I, I saw a tweet today. This guy in Ireland or Scotland tweeted a bus company and was like, "Hey, my three year old wants to know if the buses uh, get to sleep in the garage at night, <laughs> and what about the buses that don't sleep in the garage?" And the company tweeted back to him like, "Yeah, we just checked all of our places." Uh, they're loved. They get hot cocoa before bed, and they they switch who sleeps in the garage at night. And it, just reading that's, that's adorable. Like, that's like, come on, that's nice. And when companies have that, Wendy's has a great Twitter account. They're always cheeky in yeah. their posts and whatnot. And but uh, the great thesis of somebody like a, a Matt Ridley or somebody like a Steven Pinker is that yes, there are these catastrophes, even catastrophes in the news, like you know nuclear meltdown, like Fukushima or whatever. Uh, yeah, that's what made the headlines, and now everybody's nervous about nuclear power. But if you look at, say, France, there's a reason France has more of a renewable energy sector than Germany. Germany's very focused on being green. It's because France is mostly run by nuclear power, and they've done it pretty well. They've not had any major accidents. Whereas Germany tried the whole, we're going to do solar farms. Oh, no, we didn't really. It got dark. We thought it was going to be able to save up, fire up the coal again. And that was a big waste of money. Okay. Um, so there, because of catastrophes and the reporting on the catastrophes, it makes people say, like in the United States, go, oh, we can't have nuclear power in this country. Look at what happened with Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and Fukushima recently. It's just unsafe. Yes, bad things can happen. Um, even the worst case scenario, nuclear war. Like Ridley was asked, you know, think about the 20th century. There were like 10 different powers with these capabilities at a certain point. Uh, like the United States used them and the Soviet Union had accidents. 
and we're testing them all the time. Still, still having accidents. Still having accidents. Yes. Oh God. And by the way, talk about another country that is just a basket case. Russia. Yeah. Um, they shut off their uh, radiation sensors. By the way. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Two days after it happened. Well, now I maintain that backing the Russian bear into the corner isn't exactly the best approach because they'll react to that. We should definitely be keeping an eye on them, though. Definitely. Because of situations like that. Call them on it. You're like, guys, you need our help. Like, you keep having these accidents. What the hell are you doing? And then they play it up to the press worldwide and to their own people. Like, nothing wrong here. I think, I th- was it Putin and France? Sar- not Sarkozy. Gosh, who's... Uh, Macron. Yeah. The, he was having a conversation with Putin today, and Putin was like, we don't like that people in your country can express their frustrations. Hmm. We don't want that here in Russia. And it's like, okay, that makes sense. I, too, would not like to hear people bickering, but I will celebrate them bickering, and that's the difference between you and I, because they have every right to do so. Right. When you try and quell the bickering... You just look like a you look like a meanie head. And the, yes, you do. And when the bickering though is it put into a productive way, when you can freely bicker without threat of you know having your face you know caved in or you being punched or arrested by the authorities, these sorts of things, it actually can be a good way to let off steam and come up with new ideas. Sure, absolutely. The reason people like Matt Ridley are so optimistic about the future is, well, one thing he said, for instance, we praise great scientists and innovators. And, but he made a fantastic point. He goes, think about, you know, the cliche when it comes to innovation. The light bulb. Thomas Edison. He said, yes, Thomas Edison deserves the credit in America for inventing the light bulb. But by the time Edison filed his patent, 21 other people, really 23 if you count their important assistants... 23 people independent of Edison around the globe also created the light bulb. Like the same basic idea. Einstein, if it hadn't been Einstein with the theory of relativity, there were scientists hot on his heels right to about to approach the idea. And so he says it's, he's optimistic because when you have largely free societies that can trade freely, that can speak freely, and you allow ideas to compete, as he puts it, ideas having sex, because he's a zoologist and he knows biological evolution, he's like, man, this is a very similar thing in the realm of culture and ideas. And it made him very hopeful. As long as we just keep our heads on straight, we don't go into something like what's in Russia and China. And you allow the free exchange of ideas and goods and services, allow people to test their ideas freely without throwing all the cost onto everybody else. That means you don't want, you know, massive monopolies, including government monopolies, experimenting on us. You let people experiment voluntarily. Uh, Then he's hopeful. Somebody's like, well, what about a terrorist with a nuclear weapon? He's like, well, that might happen. But it'd be really bad for people in the blast zone and living in that area. But largely, we can control these things, and we're getting better at controlling these things. Same, he makes the same point on global warming. He's like, yes, things are getting hotter, but uh, we're also responding to natural disasters. Less people are dying from them. 
we're getting less of a hit to our economic growth from natural disasters. We're coming up because of innovation with new ways to respond to these potential threats. Uh, and so he's just very optimistic. He's like, yes, plenty of challenges, but we've come up with a robust cultural, economic, political system that can respond to these things. So, yes, freak out, freak out, freak out, brother, if you want. Sorry for going into macho man there for a second. But just relax at the end of the day. If you really look at what we're doing, uh, we are progressing. And often, he says, it's not a top-down approach. Like, I saw this article this morning, Troy. After watching all these you know, brilliant economists, also watch George Gilder. He's got a book out as of 10 months ago. It's called Life After Google, where he called, he, he came out with a book in the late 80s called Life After Television, where he essentially called the Internet and smartphones. Like, he's a futurist. Uh, free market economist, and he just nailed it. It's like, you'll be walking around with these devices that will have every aspect of life that you know. And he, the one thing, he, and he admits he, he's guilty of it, he failed to see the negative of the Internet. And so his big argument for life, what will take down Google, is blockchain technology. That the idea of big data processing uh, is going to become too expensive in the face of new technologies that can disperse this information in a more secure way where you're not as exposed and naked to the world whenever you go online. And he also gets into the hubris of some people in Silicon Valley, like the singularity is coming, AI will fix all our problems for us, everything will be automated. He cites these conferences at like the turn of the 20th century that were saying the same thing, because they had just come up with computer science and like solving deterministic problems. A young scientist, I think Koble is his last name, shows up and goes, yeah, y'all are wrong. And he showed, essentially, for every deterministic computer program you have, you need an oracle. You need some command that comes from outside the system to direct the program. So, yeah, big data will be able to do a lot. Right now, it's sending targeted ads to our phones and to our online. It's solving a lot of problems and figuring out things about people. But you will always need uh, the human it's, it's dynamic funny. to actually be smart about things. It's funny that he mentioned an oracle. Hmm. Because weren't the oracles of Delphi getting high off the natural gases in the mountain that's that one resided. theory that's one theory that, and that's that why they, how they started vision. spouting nonsense yeah, that's one idea so or could some other people they might have been like play acting and you know ramping it up once they saw another oracle do that but yeah <laughs> well that's profitable yeah exactly I could just do keep that. it going so i it's a, it's amazing but reading all these guys like Gilder and Matt Ridley and Deirdre McCloskey, by the way, used to be Donald McCloskey. We can talk about that after the break. Pretty fascinating stuff. What? Yeah. Deirdre McCloskey yeah. used to be Donald. I'll tell you more of that life story after the break. But I saw this article earlier today. Does Donald have a girl's equivalent? Went with Deirdre. You know, like Reginald has a Regina. Yeah. For Donald, it became Deirdre. Is that usually what it is? I don't think so. I have no clue. <laughs> I'm sure... There's a formula for it. Yeah, and it's not really an androgynous name like Ashley or Pat or Sam. Pat's a good name for a dog. Yeah. Like Gregory. Or I I'm still going to get a black lab, no, a chocolate lab and name him Stephen. Stephen? Mm -hmm. That's a good name. That's a good name. But this one article that just went, no. The headline was, we need a national institute of nutrition taxpayer-funded research. I'm like, no! Y'all royally mucked up 
I use that with an M, mucked up, messed up the dietary guidelines for generations with their corporate capture and all this stuff. How many carbs and sugars were you feeding into Americans based on daily guidelines? No. And let's be clear, I'm all for guidelines and research and more funding of figuring out what our diets do to our bodies, our nutrition, how it contributes to certain diseases. I'm great with that. But it shouldn't, it probably will not be a top-down solution to that. Right now, because the general knowledge is the old food pyramid is out the window, people are competing for your hearts and minds on what's the best diet for you. And I'm pretty certain of the fact that there is no one-size-fits-all. No, I, I would be okay with them doing that at a local level, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's more the federal government, like, top-down solutions from all the smart people. I mean, that's not how the world is going to be solved. If the United States wasn't so huge... Yeah. It would be a lot easier to swallow. Sorry. It would be a lot easier to take in. Yeah, if it was like Sweden. Yeah, Sweden. Or, or, or the UK like, or something. You know, a, a, a tiny, yeah, a yap in my human and help in my <laughs> motor scooter. <laughs> it's like those countries, while their population is massive, yeah. they're small. Yeah. Well, in the terms size of, land of some mass. of our states. And yeah. it, it becomes a lot easier to control things from a central node. Well, and they're also homogeneous in terms of culture and history. There's a long history of the Swedes. Of oh, I'm sorry. We're talking about two different countries. Oh, okay. I was talking about the UK. Oh, yeah. The UK. So you said, yeah. You the UK is a basket case in that regard. Not Hamas. Uh, but no, they're like a lot of the Nordic countries, sure. our friends on the left will cite. It's like, well, those are just completely, you're really apples and oranges, guys. Yep. Like those places, all Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, all these places have long Denmark, all long histories of. Next time someone mentions how open uh, the Nordic countries are, uh, just bring up what they do to the Romani peoples. Oh yeah, this is the thing. It's it's interesting how certain types of oppression, which has been throughout human history, are emphasized for the political fight of the day. I find that quite interesting. I mean, one is this new. A 1619 project for the New York Times Magazine. And I'm all for it. They're trying to educate people on the real role of the institution of slavery in developing the country. Are they redefining what the real role was? Well, in some ways, I think they're overstating it. One of the recent ones, and I follow a lot of historians and economists, and they called out this article. Essentially, the argument was that slavery was so pivotal in the economy of the United States that we don't, we don't give credit to it. They claim essentially like 50% of GDP in 1836 was from slavery. No. That comes, it comes from a guy with the last name Baptist, of all things. Edward Baptist wrote a book a few years ago. And when other academics who are experts on this came and like looked at his work, they're like, dude, you triple counted transactions. Like slavery accounted in that year for 5% of GDP, not 50. But he's never answered the claims. He, when the economist gave him a bad review, this white guy, Edward Baptist, said, well, look at white people not wanting to owe up to the past. Yeah. It's just ideological propagandist crap. Yeah. Uh, you see that? Well, so here I am going on about both sides again. But <laughs> you see that with... Both sides. 
Oh, of course. And, and, yes. and they're, they're not only their selective use of statistics, but their convenient hypocrisy. Oh, of course. Um, it's, a, it's a virtue in the political fight. One of the biggest issues, though, and it's not something that crops up all the time in day to day life, but you see it a lot in academia with regarding history is these progressive historians that obviously have the beautiful oculus of hindsight <laughs> you know they can they can look at something within the confines of history and be like well here's why you're wrong and it's like wow man really yeah thanks for that well if, if also i love how they'll for instance i saw a few democrats and i saw of all people killer mike making this point uh, sitting down with charlemagne the god killer mike the good hip-hop artist uh, yeah, oh, so uh, he was saying, I thought you were, run the jewels? Hmm? Run the jewels? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kill, yeah. kill him, I can yeah. help you? Okay, I thought you were talking about the guy from, uh, he's the guy with the the nicely coiffed facial hair. It looks horrible, but it's, uh, he's the big, huge guy that's with the guy that used to be on Red Eye. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. I thought you were talking about that guy. That's Tyrus, that's, uh, that's anyway. Killer Mike, and I've heard other academics make this point, if you, when it, the mass shootings happened, gun control became a debate again, a lot of black Americans spoke up and said, if you actually study the history of gun control, where there's actually been gun control, it's racist gun control. Like, we can't let the black population we formerly enslaved have guns. They're going to kill us all, which they probably would have, and good riddance. Um, and so they're kind of making the point of, like, yeah, gun control is pretty racist, guys. If you look at the history of, like, work hour limitations, minimum wage, pretty racist and kind of sexist yeah. to, like, inject it with eugenics. But that's not brought up. And all these systematic, like, analysis of the racist past of America, certain things that are clearly patently racist are just left out because, oh, that's the policy of the day for the progressive. It's interesting how that works. It's true, but seeing images of people that have committed mass shootings—oh, I get it—not dead. Yeah, and then seeing images of oh yeah, someone I don't know selling cigarettes illegally and then dying. Oh, and that officer was just fired today. Uh, the Good riddance. On the, yeah, and of course, yeah. <laughs> did you did you read what the, was the uh, one that got me the benevolent order of police in New York? Oh, the said? fraternal order. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They they stand by their own. That's for sure. Yeah, for better or for worse. So here's an idea. Let's create another industry based on insurance, rather than making me pay for your mistakes. Hmm. You have to buy insurance. We'll treat it exactly the same as malpractice insurance, and it will allow other cops or to like, hold you accountable. I just paid my car insurance today, just like liability insurance. Well, if you if you have more than, let's say, one or two bad things on your record that are proven with your body camera, mm -hmm. your insurance premium goes up. It's not a deductible type of issue. It's one of those things where it's like, we need to alleviate the financial stressors on the everyman for police making mistakes that they're supposedly, quote unquote, trained to do. Right. Perhaps they are, but perhaps the training needs to change if these people keep, if people keep well, dying like also this. depends. I, that's why I get frustrated with these nationalized top-down conversations because number one depends on the trainer, depends on the city and the department. Sure. Um, there's so much of this. And also, back to an earlier point we made, the, the topics that keep being brought up, like like police violence, the symbols and occasions that the left wants to use are the ones that aren't factually true. 
Like, yeah, let's get behind the guy in South Carolina. I think his name's Walter Scott. He got shot in the back running away. Yep. I believe that police officer was convicted at trial of Philando Castile up in Minnesota when he was reaching for his ID. Get shot by the police officer. Yeah, let's talk about that. What's that officer's background and psych profile like that he was so, like, revved up that he shot the guy going for his license? Well, the, the most interesting thing that I constantly see from people, and these are these are from people that refer to people that support the police as bootlickers. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah. These, these people constantly cite that police hiring, you are required to have a, like, if you exceed a certain intelligence quotient number they won't hire you. And so I did a little research into that. And it's true. Oh, really? It's 100% true. Hmm. It's not true today. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah, in like 2000. It was Uh, true all the way up to like 2005. Interesting. Yeah. So (laughs) it's not true today because someone was like, hey, this doesn't make any sense, guy. (laughs) And whoever guy was was like oh yeah it's you're right they've changed their policies yeah, we yeah. did that so the cops would follow orders but we could find all sorts of reasons that even other police officers and folks that are know the business have worked the job would go yeah that was the wrong thing for that officer to do yep but what recently did the democratic candidates bring up oh michael brown and ferguson the, uh, of all the people i know it's like, come on, guys. Really? It's the same thing. When you're trying to inform the American people about the history of slavery and how it formed the country, are you, you're so hell-bent on demonizing capitalism and free markets, you want to rush to say capitalism and slavery went hand-in-hand hand together, despite the fact that, you know, like Adam Smith and Dave Ricardo, all these famous early free market economists were abolitionists. Most of the classical liberals are abolitionists. Like, the North capitalist north was much stronger economically than the slavery south like it's okay number one to say yes slavery was a moral abomination it's also okay to say on top of that it's economically inefficient and by inefficient because people are like what is that inefficient for everybody it's a travesty a moral travesty an economic one for for the people at the top exactly but that's not the most efficient that's actually most of human history people at the top through violence most of the time exploit everybody else yeah and we've figured out a system no if you give the average guy a go and you regard him like he's essentially your equal even if he's not as smart or whatever but it's an equal person with dignity we'll all get rich to the point now that the people in poverty in america are living better than kings and queens that used to exploit a few hundred years ago it's true. Now, that might not mean much to the person in poverty today, but having a little perspective that we are getting better and what led us here is good to have in the back of your mind. And where I do worry is that the so-called clerisy, the thought leaders, the people in the press, people writing the books, in Hollywood, authors, um, educators, people in academia, there's this scowl towards anything that has to do with free markets and trade. Like there, it's we're kind of lurching back to what most of history has been of no, the people who are really smart need to control everything, and there's a degree of control that's necessary, but y'all are hoping for way too much control. Yeah, it's it's dystopian. Yes, and that's a fantastic point in the McCloskey book. She said that the romantic tradition of literature used to be very hopeful, all these utopian visions and stuff, and since, especially since the war, that World War Two. 
Uh, Dude, even World War One when realism yeah. popped up. Ever since we started gassing, folks, Joey. Yeah, I know, I know. But despite all these travesties and these abominations and all the violence and stuff, look at what's actually happened. Two world wars in the 20th century. Two. Not to mention all the other wars and all the terrible nuclear weapons developed. Life's never been better on the planet. So the good continues on despite the bad, the worst you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Uh, it's an amazing thing. And just have the perspective to do that. But coming up, I've got eight questions for you. Apparently somebody at Harvard studied uh, turning strangers into friends with eight great questions. Okay. Touch on that. And I also want to get into, this is the first time I've heard a trans person, not in the hysterical media, but just a trans person tell their story. And I was like, oh, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So talk about that. Donald becoming Deirdre McCloskey. It's an interesting thing. Be right back, folks. Joey Clark. I just want to state right off the bat, folks, <laughs> what Hitler did was wrong. <laughs> like, and by the way, slavery was wrong. Like, look at me making these big moral pronouncements from times far gone. Yeah. Oh, we get it, folks. We get it. But here, I want to do this because it really did. I found it interesting. This book I've been listening to is done by Deirdre McCloskey. Like PhDs and five or six different fields. Wow. Has taught these, you know, study, you know, communications, economics, history, philosophy, the classics, like nobody's fooled. But this interview watching, you can find it, Deirdre McCloskey, the Rubin Report. It's about a year or two old. And Dave Rubin being kind of this classical liberal gay man who no longer considers himself on the left. Dave Rubin, in my opinion, intellectually, he's a good interviewer, but intellectually he's a second-hander, much like myself. He's not like the guy you go to for the big ideas. He's the guy who interviews the people with the big ideas. He's, he's, he's Joe Rogan. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but when you... Rogan's, I think, even more impressive than, than Dave. Uh, especially just... They're both comedians. Joe's better. Fair. Uh, he's interviewing Deirdre McCloskey. Now, you used to be Donald Deirdre. And when you see Deirdre, actually at this point, 80-something years old, you're like, that could actually pass as an old woman. Very burly old woman, but fair enough. And, uh, I'm like, why did you... Why are you trans? Why, why the transition? And she, and I'm going to respectfully say she, she said, I lived my life as a man for 50 years. Had a family. Had kids. Like, all this stuff. And my, and he's like, did your wife know about your proclivity? He's like, yeah. But we, kind of in the 70s and 80s, treated it like guys who have a kink in whatever. Like, oh, he's kinky for feet. Oh, Donald, Donald McCloskey there, brilliant guy, but he likes to dress up as a woman. 
So it was just kind of treated like, eh, whatever, that's his weird kink, no big deal. And when he hit, like, midlife, after having kids, kind of became an empty nester, the joke that she now makes is, I decided I could either live the rest of my life as an old man or an old woman. I'm like, okay, that's kind of funny. And the the transition, she said, I came by it honestly. And has actually talked to, it wasn't like a, like, had no reason to do it. Like, it, career at stake, family at stake, all these things at stake. It was she didn't like, run somebody over with her car. No. A la uh, that former Olympian. Oh, well, uh, Caitlyn Jenner? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, she's kind of like, no, it's just, I, I've always been this way since I was a kid, and I'm not going to closet it anymore. And she said that when she came out, actually, most of the colleagues she worked with, other economists, and like, well, if it makes Deirdre happy. Like, economists are very, you know, biased to this. Well, it's it's demonstrated preference. So if you're taking that action, obviously it's probably good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought it was, it's also an interesting spokesman. It's not somebody who's, like, real young and going through a lot in life and trying to figure it out. No, this is somebody who's established. Like, a brilliant academic, all her peers respect. Does she do uh, hormone replacement? I don't think so. HRT? I don't think so. Uh, Donald, now Deirdre, has always had a speech impediment, makes some of her speeches difficult to listen to, always had a stutter. Okay. Um, But that's before any transition or anything like that. And when you listen to her, it's like this, it's a shame there is a, a stutter, because this is a freaking brilliant person who has given us, I, I, if you have the time, folks, just look up the... Uh, the bourgeois series, uh, bourgeois virtue, bourgeois dignity, bourgeois equality, essentially makes the case for why we're so rich. Like, what happened in the year 1800 in the West, kind of northern Europe, then Britain, then the United States, that made us how we are today? And it's not the usual explanations that you'll hear. Like the 1619 project the New York Times is running, it was just exploitation and slavery and imperial exploitation of the third world. no. No, wrong. Wrong. <laughs> because, number one, people throughout history had slaves and did these sorts of things. It made a few people rich, like we covered earlier, like the people doing the exploiting, but it didn't make the whole population rich, certainly not the enslaved. Well, it was just, uh, like, capital. Like, you built up capital, and that is why we call it capitalism. It's like where capital is, that's where the decisions are made, and we saved up and built up a lot of capital she's like uh no number one there's been capital preservation and savings from the beginning of trade which goes back thousands of years and this is sort of the canard that marx put out there is that capitalism was like this new form of society like trading and whatnot and profit it's like no no it wasn't like people have been trading and profiting for thousands of years They were just always looked down on and controlled by the authorities. Um, Well, there's all these explanations out there that it's just, you know, profit-seeking that did it, capital did it. And her answer is an interesting one. It's how the middle class or the townsfolk or the bourgeois, the literal translation like French townsfolk, started to regard themselves in a more respectable light. And then the clerisy, the top-down people, all the, the nobility and the kings and queens and the priestly class, all this stuff, stopped looking down their nose at these people and stopped controlling them. 
and sort of said, all right, go ahead. It wasn't always perfect by any means, but it's no mistake that when cl- the ideology of classical liberalism comes around, peace, liberty, and equality, essentially, in a phrase, that you saw this massive, not only wealth creation, but the key is innovation. And essentially, ideas having sex. I'll go back to that House of Lords member, Matt Ridley. He starts off by saying, think of two things you can hold in your hand. One is like a Stone Age axe. Took one person to make that. Get the wood, you chop it, you hear the stone, you attach the two. You got an axe. Then look at a computer mouse, like I'm holding in my hand now. That took thousands, if not millions, of people to make. Now, and he's people are like, "What's what do you mean?" And it was one factory. He's like, "No, like the the plastic to make it, like all the different component parts, not just the parts themselves, getting those actual resources, but the ideas to make those things." Yeah. And he uses that example to kind of smack people in the face that that's where we're at now. For all these things that you take for granted, holding your hand, use every day, and it's just as useful in the sense of you using an axe to chop wood or kill somebody. But that axe only took one person. Most of what we use today requires thousands and millions of different connections around the globe in order for us to have the prosperity we have. And that's the great insight is let ideas have sex, let people trade freely and test out these ideas, and you will be astonished by the amount of innovation that you will see. And it continues to this day. There's one aspect of innovation, though, that kind of gives me pause, and it goes back to China. I read an article today that China is now in some ways ahead of the West in the United States, in other ways still a little behind on quantum computing. And the big thing that spurred this was the Snowden revelations, when they realized how much the NSA for the United States and the U.S. intelligence and all their five eyes around the globe and the West, how much they were collecting on people. China kicked into high gear on funding quantum computing and coding is really nervous about being hacked and controlled. And apparently China is now going leaps and bounds ahead in certain areas, especially quantum encryption, which is, um, I, I don't know, it's uh, shocking in a way that this top, the idea though is, okay, you might be effective at like the research aspect of it, but how are you actually going to apply it in an effective way? Maybe in the military they could do it pretty well. But, you mean what kind of effect can quantum com- computing have in our life? Yeah. Oh. Massive. Yes, no, both, neither. Right. It's a lot more easy than on and off. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought, I honestly, when you were saying they're ahead in some ways and behind in others, I, I thought you were making a joke. No, like, they're I actually... you were making a quantum joke. No, but, yeah, but they actually are, according to these articles, apparently they're ahead, in particular, in quantum encryption. Yeah. That's a uh, that's cause for concern. Yeah, but I would rather it be something defensive than oh, offensive. Yeah, no, and that theoretically, a quantum computer could break all non-quantum encryption at a certain point. But there's no nobody's gotten to that point yet. So uh, we'll see where this all goes. But you know, generally, folks, I'm uh, I'm optimistic. I've been convinced by these people I'm reading. Doesn't mean there aren't going to be bad things. And the big threat. And this is Matt Ridley's point, and you brought it up with me off-air, Troy. Is like, what about the one guy who kind of gets power in a country that's down on their luck and starts going, the problem is the Jews. It's like, yeah, actually, Matt Ridley cites, that's an example of why top-down solutions are often uh, 
very dangerous because when somebody insists through charisma, top down, here's how we're going to solve all our problems. Number one, they're not going to solve the problems. The problems are too complicated. You need multiple minds. Uh, but number two, it can often lead to the strongman approach. Uh, we see that mostly, I think, in China and in Russia. But a perfect example of how it doesn't work is North Korea. Like, it works for, I guess, Kim Jong-un and a few of his cronies and generals. It yeah. doesn't work for the North Korean population. No. And it's but just, they're not... They're, so, the difference between something working and something working for an idea is that if say a population is outside of the focus or scope of an idea then of course it's not going to work for the population right but in terms of it working for the idea like the nazis you know they right the reason they were so successful and also unsuccessful was because of the ideology yeah. itself yeah you know you could only get promoted if you were good for the party that kind right of thing. right and that's the problem the chinese have these same thing with russia same yeah. thing with erdogan's turkey uh, and to a certain extent, like people like Saudi Arabia, uh, that you have to hew to the ideologies. Iran is another example. And we do it to ourselves to a certain extent. It's what I don't like. We're nowhere near as bad as those countries. But there's way too much you have to conform to the party line, whether yeah, Democrat we, or Republican. We spread it out over two parties. Right, and I'd like to see that broken up a little bit, that, you know, people disagreeing a lot more within their own tribe. Totally agree. Unfortunately, the growing pains of fracturing one or both parties ends up with something like Antifa or Proud Boys. Yeah. But those are the... Well, those are the... the exception to the rule that we can respond to effectively. Sure. And we will have to respond, but... Showers, mostly. Showers, yeah. Get that bacteria off. Yeah. But Troy, I appreciate you being here tonight. Yeah, bud. Appreciate y'all listening. Be back tomorrow.